Welcome to Understanding the Law, Week in Review. The show is hosted by Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes and is a service of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law, Week in Review is a weekly radio broadcast discussing recent legal and business news. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. And now, your hosts, Peter Lamont and Bob Hughes. Good Monday morning, first day of fall 2014. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Bob Hughes. How you doing today, Bob? I'm doing okay. Welcome aboard. How are we feeling? Uh, a typical Monday, running behind schedule, last minute as usual. <laughs> That's all right. That's what Mondays were made for. That's why they, uh, they only have one per week. It's like, uh, you ever see that movie Office Space? Oh, yeah. Lived it, I think, in some realms of my life. Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> That's what today. No kidding. Yeah, go ahead. I want to make some oh, I just, just good. Yeah, please, yeah. All right, so we're all kinds of off balance today, but we'll get there. All right, um, so first of all, I want to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor is Audible, and uh, they've provided us with a special URL that allows our listeners to download a free audiobook and to get a free 30-day trial. Um, if you don't want the trial... Don't take it, but get your free audiobook. It's free. How many things are free? How do you get it? Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio. That's how you get it. So thanks to Audible. Make sure you check it out. You can download you know, your free book. There's also a link on our website, utlradio.com. Uh, scroll down about three-quarters of the way down the page. You'll find that link, and then you can get your, your free audiobook. So... I uh, also want to talk about what we've been doing recently. Yesterday, I was uh, very happy to have participated in the CHD Coalition. It's the Congenital Heart Defect Coalition. Uh, and it was a really, really great walk yesterday here in uh, northern New Jersey. There were over 1,500 people. It was a huge event. Uh, for those of you who are regular listeners, you've heard me talk about my middle son, Luke, who's uh, eight and a half, and when he was six months old, he was diagnosed with a congenital heart defect, and he had a, a pacemaker put in. And, you know, he's obviously he's going to have the pacemaker for the rest of his life, but he's a, a true warrior, a true hero of mine, quite honestly. He's a tough kid, and it was really great yesterday to go out there and, and to support the organization and to be a, a participant in the walk, and they did a really great job, so... Uh, that's always a nice thing, so I'm happy that we were able to do that. Um, also, I want to um, mention that October coming up, because these months just fly by. Uh, the days fly by. Weeks fly by. It's, I don't even know what year it is anymore, Bob. But <laughs> Well, when summer, when summer doesn't get here, it just kind of seems like nothing changes. Well, um, October is National Bullying Awareness Month, and we're going to be partnering up with PACER, the uh, National 
Anti-Bullying Institute, and we're going to be uh, wearing orange on October 22nd to support the bullying awareness um, involved in that. In October, we're going to be promoting that. And then starting on November 1st, we are going to be doing our annual coat drive, again, partnering with Jersey Cares. And uh, that coat drive will start on November 1st. And we're going to be doing something interesting this year. We are going to be donating uh, or matching every coat donation with a monetary donation to a woman's shelter in the area. We're going to give you more details about that as November approaches. Uh, press releases will go out and that sort of thing. But, you know, we've done very well in the past with collecting coats. Last year, we, we brought in over 550 coats. I'd really like to see if we can hit that 700, 750 mark uh, this year. And everything is, is tax deductible. It goes directly to families in New Jersey um, that, that need coats. And it's a, a really great organization. It's not something where they're going to resell it at, at a store. It goes directly to families in need. And that's the kind of help that I like to give where you can actually see the benefit. And people don't really see how much that's needed until they get into the schools. I think you'd, most people would be surprised how many kids are in a situation where they don't have adequate uh, coats for the wintertime. No, you would be surprised. And even in areas, you know, there, there's areas around me that appear to be very affluent. And, um, you know, you still see those kids going into the school. And they need coats. It's just, you know, I think the world has changed so much. It's very difficult, I think, to... To make it through as a parent in today's world, because if you go to a private school, it's ridiculously expensive. If you go to a public school, it's still ridiculously expensive because of clothes and just child care in general is expensive. So there are families out there that need help, and I think it's you know it's up to us to, to try to do that. I mean, I've outgrown coats for the last 10 years, so I've got a stack that I donate every year. Bad for me, good for them. <laughs> it's all right, though. It, it goes to a good cause, and that's important. Yeah, so that's going to be coming up in November. I'd really like to hit that seven this year. And uh, I think I'm running out of announcements. I had more, but I was so um, so late this morning getting things together that I've completely lost all my train of thought and organization. Uh, just a couple things I just want to mention, though. Coming up this Thursday, we have guest Lou Adler on the program, 10 o'clock Eastern Time. Lou Adler's a Looking forward to that. Yeah, he's a human resources management guru. He's written some books. Um, he's, he's really going to be interesting. We're going to talk to him about human resources and how to manage your employees. Then on October 2nd coming up, we have author uh, J.A. Sarr, and she's going to be talking about um, being... A, a woman in uh, in business and how her love of writing has, has really transitioned to her into being this uh, very well-known, reputable author. We also have coming up, this is worth noting, on October 16th, celebrity chef Fabio Viviani. Um, he was a contestant on Top Chef, and he's been on the Top Chef programs uh, and will be on the show to talk about his new book and his new restaurant, so that's going to be exciting. Then on October 23rd, we've got Cord McCoy and perhaps his brother coming back on the show. Remember, Cord McCoy is from The Amazing Race, and we had a really great interview with him 
last time. Very, very motivational and inspirational. So we've got a lot of good guests coming up. Um, and then it looks like on, on October 30th we have uh, Amy Applebaum, who is a very successful and well-known motivational speaker focusing on women in the workplace. So it looks like we've got a, a bunch of good people coming up, right? Absolutely. And it, actually, the setup kind of for uh, Mr. Adler's show kind of starts today when we start to get into the headlines. We're going to talk a lot about social media and uh, labor situations, employers, employees, kind of some do's and don'ts. So we'll set that table today for everyone as well. Bob, why don't you kick us off? Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Well, to kind of uh, pick up a little bit from the week prior, and you know, it's it's funny, the more you listen, the more you'll start to notice more and more headlines that have legal applications, and it just continues to get more and more interesting each week. And last week, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but shoe designer Antonio Brown claims Louis Vuitton committed trademark infringement with footwear that's confusingly similar to his level Eight, or excuse me, level 13 brand. Um, now, this kind of goes into, you know, if you've got something, you've got to take the time to get your lawyers involved on in the front end or you're going to end up in the back end when it comes around to trying to make sure that people are paying you for your product. In a lawsuit filed in the U.S. Southern District Court of New York, Harlem raised cobbler Antonio Brown and his level 13 brands incorporated charged that Louis Vuitton has committed trademark infringement by placing metal nameplates across the toe boxes of his on-the-roof footwear collection. The plaintiff claims that the inherently distinctive nameplate that was launched in the early days of 2013 has already become a recognizable product signature thanks to celebrities like Chris Brown, Jason Derulo, and Tyson Beckford. They all wear the Level 13 shoes in television appearances and magazine features. The lawsuit claims that in February of this past year, Vuitton, who's not a stranger to the industry, a 160-year-old French company with international presence, began to compete unfairly with Level 13 by selling footwear using the trade dress that is confusingly similar to the Level 13 toe plate and which impinges on the goodwill in it. According to Brown, Vuitton's global marketing machine has helped claim credit for his idea. Rep for uh, the shoe company, or the designer, I should say, Vuitton, counters, of course, that the lawsuit is entirely without merit and the company will vigorously defend itself. Now, this isn't the first time Louis Vuitton has been accused of borrowing a shoe idea. In 2009, the conglomerate settled a lawsuit with New Balance, which contended that Vuitton's minstrel shoe was a ripoff of their NB574. So here you've got a little bit of history with Vuitton doing this, but it also kind of smacks in the face of protecting yourself when you have a product, no matter how big you are. You know, if you don't if you don't get someone involved, and we talked about this last week, how much you want to pay on the back end or pay a little bit on the front end. If, if I have an idea, Peter, what do I do? Oh, this, this is an interesting case because it deals with uh, a shoe, and, and here's why this is important. So let's just talk real quick. What's the difference between trademark and copyright? Copyright is something uh, that put down because people get confused over this issue. You know, they, they refer to intellectual property as either copyright or trademark, but really it is two separate and distinct things. So early on in the, the 1990s, there was a, a bunch of litigation uh, when fashion designers were trying to protect their intellectual property and they were suing or trying to file copyright claims and trying to protect their products that way. But a copyright is protection over a written article, music, a speech, a book, uh, that, that's you know, maybe content on your website. That's where you get copyright protection from. Tr 
trademark is completely different. Trademark is a recognizable marker symbol that is used to represent your company, and infringement occurs when someone uses a mark that's so substantially similar or confusing that it makes it difficult for the consumer, in this case, to differentiate between the products. But what's really fascinating is that in fashion, uh, and this goes back to the 1990s cases where uh, handbag designers were trying to copyright protect their merchandise, especially against people on the street who were, who were selling knockoffs. And they were filing all these applications, and they were all coming back unsuccessful because when the product serves a utilitarian function, in this case, a pocketbook serves a function of throwing your, your junk in it and carrying it around. You can't, there's nothing unique or distinctive about that pocketbook. However, you might be able to have trademark protection with something like a Louboutin shoe, which has the uh, signature red sole. And in, in that case, they're able to file trademarks and protect their brand. In this Louis Vuitton situation, unless the um, you know, Antonio Brown is going to be able to, to, to sort of convince a jury and a judge that they're so substantially similar that they lead to confusion, he's probably going to lose because the idea of putting a metal plate on your shoe is not unique, in my opinion. It depends, I guess. Is it, is it the, likeliness, the likelihood of the design? If, if they use a circle, per se, if Chris Brown, or excuse me, Antonio Brown's using a circle um, with his initials in it, or the, and then Louis Vuitton comes out and uses a circle in the same spot, does that get a little bit closer to it, or, hey, it's, it's, just, it's a nameplate? It has nothing yeah. to do with yours or mine. That gets closer, and if you look at the Louis Vuitton signature bags that have the LV on them, that's something that you can trademark. If you look at a coach handbag and it's got the coach markings, you can trademark that because that is more of an artistic feature than it is a utilitarian feature. And that's where you're successful on a trademark claim because you know it's, it's our brand. It's our branding. You know that LV on a pocketbook has, is a Louis Vuitton. But you know how sometimes ladies' handbags, they've got those, those tags that they have attached to the strap. There'll be a coach sure. tag or a Louis Vuitton tag. That tag is not unique in any way. What's unique about it is what is on the tag. So where your example kind of hits the, the mark, if you've got a circle with somebody's initials on it and another manufacturer creates the same circle but with their initials in it and it is in the same location, the same look to it, that could lead to you know, or, or be likely to confuse and therefore, that might be a valid trademark infringement claim. So it's going to be interesting to see. I, I don't know what these shoes look like that Antonio Brown uh, is talking about. I don't own them. I don't think I ever will. So I have no idea what they look like. But <laughs> I guess I could have looked them up. But, you know, running behind on a Monday, what do you <laughs> yeah, yeah, Level 13 wasn't exactly on your mind. Um, now, when you're going, when you, when you have something, if, if I create... Ah, for instance, I buy websites every now and then, and I'll come up with an idea. Um, and I don't have to necessarily protect that website. I just have to, if I create a logo that represents that website or represents my business, now that's the trademark, not necessarily the copyright. Right. Whatever content you have on your site, so let's say you have 
um, an About Us page or a Profile of Services page or any of that stuff, anything that you write, that's protected under copyright law. Anything that you design uh, as far as a logo goes, that's a trademark. And um, you know, trademark issues are, are really prevalent because so many people in this modern day age, it's so easy to imitate a product or imitate a service or a website. So you see somebody's logo that you like and you, know, you, you, you steal it and you change it around. Last Monday, we talked about the stock images uh, that people were stealing. Remember the lawyer who used the stock image on his website? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's a violation because, you know, now in that case, it's slightly different because, believe it or not, that was a, a photo, and photos are protected under copyright law. So it wasn't a trademark infringement. It was a copyright infringement. But it's the same general idea. Um, but the difference really is photos, written material, copyright, symbols, um, logos, that's going to be trademark. And this case when it comes, yeah, when it comes to protecting a trademark, what is the what's the best course of action? Is it just a standard practicing attorney, or are there individuals that are more well suited to defend trademarks or to um, trademark your image? What's the best course? First of all, you've got to you've got to register your mark because you might have the best mark out there, and somebody else can go along and they can make something so substantially similar that it leads to the likelihood of confusion. But if you're not a registered trademark, you have no protection. You can sure. try to use a common law approach and say, we were in business first, and they, but you don't have any of the copyright or trademark protection. So the first step is to make sure that you register your trademark. Trademark registration can be expensive, and it's also confusing. There are m multiple types of trademarks that you can file. So the best course of action is to hire an attorney who is familiar with intellectual property laws, not somebody who just does real estate or family law, because you're not going to get the level of sophistication that you need when, when there's a lawyer. Just simply because somebody's a lawyer doesn't mean they can practice every type of law unless they've had experience with it. So you need to find somebody who is familiar with intellectual property, who has filed trademark and copyright ap applications in the past. That's who you deal with because it becomes extremely complicated. Can you do it without a lawyer? Absolutely. You just have to be careful, make sure you understand it. But for most people, it's worth hiring a lawyer because if your application is submitted, you have to pay a fee for it, and it's expensive. We're talking about four or $500 sometimes, um, and you get it wrong, you don't get your money back. They'll just reject <laughs> your application, keep your money, and make you come up with more. <laughs> and do it again, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to the government would do that, but but they do. It's hard to believe our government does a lot of things, but um, the probably you know that 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 overriding theme that we kind of always talk about, Peter, is you know you're 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 going to spend a little bit of money on the front end, but you're going to spend or lose so much more on the back end if you don't protect yourself. Absolutely, it's exactly so. what we about it's the way you've got to go. You have something you want to protect, don't wait until somebody steals it. Protect it first. Spend your money on the front. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, also, a little bit from last week as well, from AL.com, Alabama. Alabama Supreme Court affirming a class action status for three two, excuse me, $3.2 billion investor lawsuit against CVS Caremark. The Alabama Supreme Court last week agreeing with the Jefferson County judge that a lawsuit against CVS Caremark Corp. 
can be treated as a class action suit to represent about 70,000 investors who claim they lost $3.2 billion in a 1990s security fraud scheme, we'll call it. The class action stems from a, basically 21 lawsuits that were filed by investors back in 1998 against Med Partners, a health company founded by former Health South CEO Richard Scrussy. Those lawsuits claimed Med Partners made false and misleading statements to the public about its financial condition and prospects. The lawsuits were combined and settled for $56 million after Med Partners claimed it was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and that $50 million was all that their insurance would cover. Well, Med Partners then changed its name in 2000 to Caremark and in 2007 merged with CVS, yeah, the prescription drug stores. In 2003, investor John Lurillo, who was one of the original plaintiffs, filed a new lawsuit claiming Med Partners lied about having limited insurance coverage during the settlement negotiations. The lawsuit claims that in October of 1998, prior to the settlement being finalized, Med Partners paid for unlimited insurance coverage. The unlimited insurance coverage had been known at the time. Lorello's lawsuit uh, claims investors could have negotiated a higher settlement amount. Um, this is kind of one of those things that I don't know if there's a statute of limitations on, but um, as as a as a would-be investor. How do people you know, pay attention to this, these things? How do they know things are going wrong? What's the best case when you yourself get involved in a uh, class action suit? Well, first of all, securities fraud is extremely complicated, and it is a specialty, and it's something that you need to deal with an attorney who is a specialist. Right? We don't like to use that term because a lot of states have ethical uh, restraints in place where you can't call yourself a specialist, but we're going to use that term because that's what the average person believes. Um, people are speci uh, specializing in an industry or an area. So you need to find an SEC litigation class action specialist when you're dealing with securities fraud. You need to know the players. You need to know the judges. You need to know the rules. The average attorney who has never handled an SEC case is not going to be able to do you justice. So that's step one. Step two is we're talking about class actions. Again, class actions are extremely difficult. They are not something that, A, is going to make you a ton of money as the plaintiff, and B, that you can typically ever handle alone. Because some of the requirements for being able to file a class action is experience of your counsel. That's one of the areas where you can be challenged on um, a class action filing. You have to have adequacy of counsel. And so your defendant could say, look, this is a solo practitioner who's never filed a class action before. Uh, he has no experience in this field, has no uh, experience with SEC litigation. And then you could actually be dismissed because your, your attorney had no experience in class actions or SEC litigation. So... That's important. You know, when you have an issue, it becomes very difficult unless you are watching your investments every day. It becomes difficult to see when things are going awry, but I think that seasoned investors can take a look at the market and say, something's not right here. I'm not getting the right answers. The company is, you know, either lying or bending the truth. Let me go get a lawyer. There's no reason not to get a lawyer if you suspect that there's some sort of fraud or shenanigans going on. But get the right lawyer and then look at the class action rules and understand them because 
SEC class actions might be slightly different in the sense that if you've put in money to an investment and they are somehow defrauding you, you have a larger stake in the outcome of the case. You've put in more money. But A, can that company support that class action lawsuit? Do they have enough money to refund everybody? Generally speaking, they don't, so they settle it, and they resolve it at greatly reduced amounts, or they give you additional shares, things like that. When we're talking about consumer class actions, people have this misconception that, oh, I'm going to file a class action, and I'm never going to have to work again. And, you know, if that was the case, I'd file 20 class actions. But <laughs> what do you get from a class action? You sue Sears because they sold you a defective screwdriver that you paid $10 for. What do you get? Well, if you're successful in the class action litigation, you get a coupon for $5 to go buy another tool at Sears. That's what you get. You don't get millions of dollars. It just doesn't work that way because the company's got to be able to pay you back or to make you whole for their violation uh, or their negligence or whatever the cause of action is. But the people that, that get a lot of money are the seasoned class action attorneys, and that's the reality of it because they get their fees covered, and the class as a whole, they get a coupon. That's generally, and I'm, I'm, I am generalizing, but that's the deal. So the same Sure, no, it absolutely... A lot of people probably don't even get to that point where they're filing a class action lawsuit. I think a lot of people, if they're ever part of a class action lawsuit, it's because they've gotten a, a card in the mail or an email that says they're part of one if they'd like to be. That's right. That's, and what happens there is at that point in the case, the case is being settled or a settlement has been reached. And the way that the courts want you, the attorney, to contact everybody else is through email or mail and you send out this opt-in, opt-out form, and that determines the number of people that are going to be part of the class. I've done, through my firm, we've done class action work before, both on the, the defense and on the plaintiff's end of it, and um, I'll tell you that while you know they've been smaller class actions, um, what I think that the defendants are banking on is that you do not do anything with your notification that comes in the mail. You don't opt in or opt out. Most of the time now it's don't do anything and you've opted into the class. Um, but I think that they're hoping to try to reduce the number of people that they have to, to pay out to. Uh, it just seems as though that's their strategy. They'll oh, sure. It bounce back. If an email bounces back, it's not deemed to have been served and, and then that person can be knocked off of the class list so they don't need to get anything. Uh, and, uh, sure. Yeah. No. I'm, you know, send up like you say, they 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 want to just lower their exposure, however they can do it. I don't want to call it a trick, but hey, you know those things. Like you say, if it gets returned, eh, we couldn't contact this person. It's not possible. That's right. And and the majority of people that get one of these coupons in the mail, and if it's like for five dollars, nobody's going to run out and say, "Oh my God, let me go get my my free." <laughs> I can't even get batteries for five dollars. So, you know. <laughs> They send them out, and I think that the vast majority of at least at least a quarter of these people don't use the coupons. So even though they've settled this case and they've given up this, this money, right, this theoretical money, because it's not a loss until somebody redeems the coupon, but that's the element of class actions that people don't know about. They don't think about or hear those things. It just seems like this glorified 
moneymaker, and it's not. Okay, yeah, promise land, yeah. <laughs> and generally, your attorney is going to be the person that determines whether or not, A, they're going to be able to file a class action, and even if they're going to be appreciated, or, excuse me, not appreciated, but uh, included in the, in the, the, uh, the legal portion. <laughs> That's not true. Oh, <laughs> uh, speaking of here's a, here's some place where you guys are generally appreciated when it comes to medical situations. Mishandling of medical records turns into an eight hundred thousand dollar HIPAA compliance mistake. I think a lot of people don't understand how HIPAA works or even what a health provider's exposure is to it, but this will simplify it for you and figure, help you figure it out. A nonprofit healthcare company has agreed to pay $800,000 as part of a settlement with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for allegedly mishandling 71 boxes of medical records in violation of the privacy rule of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, HIPAA. The provider of community-based healthcare services was helping a doctor who was retiring and transition her patients to new providers. The company took custody and control of the doctor's non-electrical medical records pertaining to 5,000 to 8,000 patients. All of those records contained protected health information. As covered by the entity, or excuse me, as covered as a covered entity, the company is required under HIPAA's privacy rule to appropriately and reasonably safeguard the PHI in its possession, the protected health information. However, employees left. 71 cardboard boxes of the patient's medical records in the doctor's driveway, even though they knew the doctor wasn't home at the time and the doctor had refused delivery of the boxes. They just didn't want them anymore. The doctor filed a complaint with HHS, Health and Human Services, alleging that the company had violated the HIPAA privacy rule, which led to an investigation. In addition to paying the $800,000, the company agreed to implement a corrective action plan that requires revising its HIPAA policies and procedures, you think so, offering appropriate HIPAA training and providing a report back to HHS. Now, the acting deputy director of health information privacy at the HHS Office for Civil Rights emphasized that covered entities, these are most of the people that you deal with when you are dealing with your health and, it, and your information about your health, healthcare providers, health insurance plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and business associates that possess protected health information, PHI, they must safeguard it properly from the time they possess until, until the time it's disposed of, according to HHS. Now, the thing is, is I don't think people realize how much information gets laid around, I don't want to say carelessly, but if you walk into any type of hospital, nurses are busy individuals. I think, I know that I personally have seen on more than one occasion, people's records just laying around, which is probably in violation. You know, HIPAA is a very complex set of um, of laws. It all serves one purpose, to protect people's medical information. But the, the scope of HIPAA is so broad that, let me give you this example. Ever been in a doctor's office, um, maybe mental health professional or regular physician, and you hear the nurse come out and talk to a patient about their blood test? Or oh, sure. Something that's, you know, it's, it's somewhat innocuous in the sense that they're not saying, oh, by the way, you've got cancer, good luck. But they're telling you, you know, right. you came back and your cholesterol is a little high. I've been in the waiting room and I've heard people talk to, you know, like maybe it's a, a nurse practitioner who comes out and just says, oh, we got your test results back, your cholesterol is normal and that sort of thing. That sure. is a violation. If you're in a mental health professional's office 
and um, you've got Mr. Jones in the waiting room, and you've got you know, Sally Field on the phone, and while you're on the phone with Sally, somebody says, uh, you know, Mr. Robert Jones, it's your time for your appointment, or you know, whatever it might be. That's conceivably a HIPAA violation. Uh, <laughs> if, if you leave materials out in viewing, um, with, with people being able to view them, HIPAA violation, clearly dropping records off in somebody's driveway, it's ridiculous, but <laughs> thing is, it is so expensive as evidenced by this fine. You're talking about $10,000 a day in general for these violations, if not more. And so this is something that all physicians of any type to really be aware of and, and protect against. What we do with our physician clients is we give them HIPAA training. We're certified to train in HIPAA. Uh, I get recertified every six months, and we go in and we talk about your rights and responsibilities under HIPAA, how to protect yourself, how to protect records, what you do, what you don't do. And we've seen, um, I think, a greater confidence in the doctors that we've been working with with respect to HIPAA violations. And none of them, knock on wood, have had any HIPAA violations since they've, they've implemented this training. So it's really, really important that medical providers, regardless of how big you are or how busy you are or how small you are, understand that HIPAA is more than just the form that you give to your patients to fill out that's here's my HIPAA disclosure. It's way more than that. And it can put you out of business. It can bankrupt you if you violate HIPAA laws. Typically don't understand it. All they know is they fill out a form that says, you know, my, my records are private. And I don't think as smart as so many doctors are, I don't think that a lot of smaller practice groups realize that one of the main focuses of their practice should be on compliance with HIPAA laws. But they will know it when they get an $800,000 fine. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets a little less complacent when the, uh, the bill comes through. <laughs> and this goes back to your earlier point. Again, if you're a doctor, you're in business, why not spend the money on the front end, protect sure. yourself, get your, your staff trained properly, because what we have seen with respect to HIPAA is those organizations who have a HIPAA violation, but there's proper training in place, and everybody's been through this training, and it's an inadvertent mistake by one person. I have seen them be more lenient and give you the slap on the wrist uh, versus something like what we, we've talked about here, dropping all the records off in someone's driveway. So... <laughs> It's important and put to put the time in. Really, if you're a physician or anyone, um, chiropractor, anybody in the medical field, you have to comply with it. No, absolutely, yeah. And like you'd said, yeah, just you know, take take the minute on the front end and and go through. And I think probably a lot of doctors when this came through, and it's, it's probably been what ten or fifteen years now. I'm trying to think when HIPAA really got its teeth into the business. I think probably a lot of providers just said, well, hey guys, hey staff. We just got to keep our mouths shut, or we got to make sure these things aren't laying around, just, and they don't go into a the indefiniteness of the protection, and b of course the fines. Yeah, I, I think they don't really understand it. I really don't because it is legal, and it is complicated, and the the handbooks that we give out to people, it's you know at least an inch thick. So it's good. Wow. To ask them, 
but it, it's complicated <laughs> stuff. So make sure you get the right people in place to help you with it. And it doesn't even need to Absolutely. They have HIPAA compliance officers that will go in and train you, and they are medical providers who have been through all of this. So you don't necessarily need a lawyer. Just get somebody that can help you with compliance. Absolutely. Oh, speaking of um, compliance, everyone getting in compliance with the new iPhone. I know Peter was really chomping at the bit to get in line over this. And actually, this is from his neck of the woods, Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. A Riverdale woman charged after a scuffle with a salesperson and police over an iPhone 6 at an Apple store. A woman who had waited in a Bergen County line for the highly anticipated iPhone 6, she got all the way to the front but left without the coveted device. Zhu King of Riverdale was, like so many other people, willing to wait hours at the Woodcliffe Lake Apple Store to get the new phone, but she was ordered to the back of the line when she stepped away for some food. No iPhone for you! King says she got angry and in a scuffle with salespeople and ultimately the police, who gave her a summons for assault and disorderly conduct. Customer says others had left the line and had come back, so she just figured it was okay. Well, others are saying that although she may have left line, she was being unreasonable, started fighting with them, and started yelling at the Apple people and basically threw a temper tantrum. King says she didn't deserve to be charged and is done with the iPhone. No one from Apple nor the store was willing to comment at the time. Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. These people are losing their minds, Peter. They're absolutely losing their minds. Yeah, well, you know, a couple points here. Point one. I assume she had an older version of an iPhone, and had she downloaded our free app, she would have been able to ask an attorney the question, if I leave the line to go get food, she didn't, so that's mistake number one. Preparation. Yes. Mistake number two, do I want the iPhone 6? I do. Am I going to go wait on eight hours of a line? I am not. (laughs) It's going to be here next month month later, it's not that important. I don't understand the rush. I think that the society has become so ingrained with, I want an app, I download it now. I want a movie, I download it now. That, you know, I've got to have this. But, you know, look, I'm excited about it. I think that there's good video and, and, and photo potential with it. I think that it's a great tool for business. But my iPhone 5, if I am in line, no matter how hungry, I'll eat my fingernails. I'm not going to get out of the line <laughs> and then it comes back. That's just stupid. It's difficult to pay for an iPhone 6 with a bloody stump, though. It, that's true. But now with their <laughs> if you've chewed your hand off. Options, all you've got to do is get that phone out of your pocket and then let them scan it and you're good to go. <laughs> but you're stupid enough to get out of line and expect that somebody's going to hold their spot while you go get food. A, the same person who's going to fight with police about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it's funny because I, I actually saw a picture of this woman, and uh, <laughs> and she's in the car. It appears to be her older mother or sister or older woman, and, and she's of Asian descent, and she's so upset and so worked up in the car, and she's yelling about how unfair this is. I, I just don't understand how she thinks it's unfair. I get out of line. All these other people are standing online. I want food, and now I want my space back, and when you don't give it to me, I'm going to cause a ruckus. What does she think is going to happen? You know, and Woodcliffe <laughs> Lake, by the way, is a very, very expensive area in northern New Jersey. Well, they have an Apple store. Of course they are. <laughs> they do. But a lot of the, the Real Housewives of New Jersey, that's that kind of area up there. Uh. 
So police don't really take kindly to that sort of um, of behavior. They're trying to keep well, con- the, you know, ultra-conservative. Con- considering the area, and if they do have a little bit of money up there, do we expect a lawsuit against the Apple Store for failure to maintain order and or a fair system in advance because they knew there was going to be demand. They knew there were going to be people camping out should they have been handing out placeholder tickets or, or wristbands so that people wouldn't have this problem. And now's the point in the show where I tell you you should go to law school and become a plaintiff. <laughs> <That's exactly laughs> oh, exactly. sure. No. Yeah. How can I make money out of this? That's what they think. <laughs> but... I'll take that as a compliment at some place. <laughs> yeah, it actually is a legitimate question, though, because I guarantee you that she's going to go find a lawyer, and she's either going to file a civil rights claim, defend herself in the municipal court, or file a lawsuit against Apple. I guarantee it. But Apple did nothing wrong. Their lines are fairly organized. They have enough people out there. Um, you know, I think that any lawsuit clearly fails. There's no civil rights violation whatsoever. So maybe she'll be smart enough and not get that lawyer who's who's trying to cash in on something. Um, unfortunately, a lot of lawyers, even <laughs> if they know they're going to lose the case, if they think they're going to get some publicity out of it, they'll take it. But you know. Oh sure. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, if, if Apple's coding is as difficult as their lines, I'm sure there wasn't a problem in the first place. Um, but one thing we had mentioned earlier in the show is um, we want to set up for um, Lou Adler and, and Peter. I'll give you the floor right now. Set up your your show for Lou Adler coming up this week. Well, you know, human resources are super important, and I don't think enough people understand how to to handle your staff or employees. And we're talking about anywhere from two employees all the way up to you know 2,000 employees and beyond. I think that human resources is a lost art. I think that it's, it's given to um, people who are form-based workers. You know, get this form, get this information, and we're good to go. Uh, and that's just not the case. I think we've talked on this show about one of the cases that I handled uh, a number of years ago where a guy was hired by a very prominent New Jersey hospital, and they did not complete all the steps on the background check. He ended up raping a psychological patient, and mm-hmm. it turns out he had been a convicted, convicted felon. And interestingly enough, this just happened last week, uh, one of my clients came in, and they said to me, listen, I hired this guy, and, and he, he owns a franchise. Um, I'm not going to get into the specifics of the, the company or anything, but he owns a franchise, and he hired someone six months ago. And corporate now is, is implementing a background check procedure, and they want background checks done within 30 days of a new hire. So in compliance, he did a background check. Turns out this individual, and this is a franchise type where these people are going into other people's homes. Turns out the guy is a convicted felon. Megan's List offender had been um, arrested for doing sexual things with children. And this is a bad guy. And he's been working at this particular place. And that is a major human resources Faux pas. I mean, just think about the liability that could have been created. That's oh, sure. That's something that, that we're going to talk to Lou about. You know, how do you make sure that you screen and, and properly 
analyze your candidate before you hire them because people are great on paper, people are great in interviews, and then they come into your business and they're awful. And you have to hope that they're awful in just their work, not awful in the things that they've done because, you know, it's, it's very difficult um, to see that in an interview. And the damage that can be done to your reputation as a business or a corporation is so great. You know, a couple of years ago, somebody working at StubHub sent out that tweet um, talking about, you know, I'm so glad to get out of this uh, stub effing hellhole, and that had some negative repercussions on StubHub. They had to take action and then do some, some damage control, and we've seen that a lot. When you don't maintain or manage your staff properly, damage they can cause you is super significant. And then on the positive end of it, how do you motivate your employees? How do you deal with your employees in a positive way? How do you direct them to the goals that you want to accomplish? So it's going to be a real great show, and it's going to run everything from hiring, screening, motivating, dealing with them. It's going to be really a great practical show. And a lot of that is all obviously real-world situations. And there are virtual-world situations that you have to manage as well. And I've, I've put a couple of stories toward the back here, so we wanted to talk about that and tie that into Thursday's show. Um, the New York Police Department, you know these guys. Well, they're sending their top brass to Twitter school. The NYPD finally getting schooled on Twitter, literally, as part of a Twitter school program that began in May. The New York Police Department's top brass have been attending classes on how to be smarter or smarter on social media. The NYPD commanders are being educated on the tough questions like, for instance, what is Twitter? Uh, and whether or not to help out that Nigerian prince who keeps bugging everyone. The Wall Street Journal reporting that the NYPD's Twitter school classes are aimed at increasing the positive power of social media for the department and avoiding its obvious pitfalls. And I know, Peter, you probably remember hashtag MyNYPD, don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a great idea. The NYPD... Hoping you don't remember, though, because it's only been a few months since the department launched its ill-fated hashtag MY, or, yeah, MYNYPD or MyNYPD Twitter campaign. Hashtag was intended to attract some positive publicity, of course, for free, ideally with some photos of the NYC residents smiling with their police officer chums. Well, that didn't exactly happen, did it? Unfortunately, the campaign was only successful at generating reports of officer misconduct or police brutality. Aside from the NYPD's official efforts on Twitter, each officer is possibly a time bomb, potentially telling racist jokes, taking inappropriate cop selfies, or even live tweeting an investigation or giving up someone's identity. Enter Twitter School. Headed up by the NYPD's Director of Citizen and Workforce Engagement, Martha Norick, the program seeks to educate officers on the basics of Twitter and how to use it positively. They can tweet pictures of kittens or dogs, use some dad humor, don't use military time, don't tweet photos of suspect and don't fall for scams. But the overriding point of this story is not only do companies and the NFL in particular need to push positive Twitter presence, now we're starting to talk about non-public entities, police departments, um, federal businesses are all getting into this Twitterverse and they're trying, I call it propaganda, Peter. You know, first of all, you there, Bob? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. First of all, you know, I, I think it's interesting, um, an interesting idea, 
this idea of Twitter school because nowadays crime doesn't just happen on the streets. It's happening through social media. And if you look at a lot of the things that we've seen in the past few years, especially with uh, mass, mass killings, and there's always that social media tie-in. Authorities are looking at social media pages to determine what somebody might have, have been thinking along the lines um, uh, uh, to commit a crime. Was it premeditated? Uh, there's that guy in Pennsylvania right now who's still on the loose who uh, allegedly killed a police officer, and he's a survivalist running around in the woods, and the police, as part of their investigation, are going through social media pages to determine, was this premeditated, was it planned, because if it was planned, then it's conceivable that he's planted food out in the wilderness, you know, and they, they gain some understanding. Um, but I don't think that, you know, in the past with the hashtag, they just had no understanding of what they were doing. And I, I don't know that if this isn't handled right, it's going to be of any value to anybody. Because <laughs> really what it should be is it should be more of an informational service, the same way that a lot of entities have websites, right? Like um, you know, the Department of Justice has a website, Secret Service has a website, FBI, but it's informational. Um, I think that people get so confused with Twitter and social media. I don't know that this is going to be anything that um, that is going to help anybody. What would be better is to train officers and in, in investigators into understanding social media, how it works, how people you know, use it. But on a more uh, conservative note, here's a concern. Now you've got government clearly into social media. Now we're looking at local law enforcement involved in social media. And the trend recently has been that companies, uh, Internet service providers, who have been served with subpoenas and social media companies served with subpoenas, they're more willingly turning over information to assist the government. So what's next? Are all of your posts going to be screened? It already is set up so that if you use certain words or terms, uh, you start tweeting about Al-Qaeda all the time, you're going to be flagged in a database just because of the nature of social media, the way that... Um, that, that things trend and, and the way that you can see what people have posted, you get flagged and, and people watch you. That's how they track hate groups. So it, what is this? What is the purpose of this is my question. So who are they trying to help with this? I think they're trying to help themselves. Exactly. Exactly. So, But now, the same way you've got officers who go out and, and, and beat people, right? And I'm not saying that uh, this is everybody. This is a, a minority. Sure. Because the majority of officers, especially NYPD, I have to say, I worked in New York for years and years, and right after 9-11, seeing NYPD, uh, the way that they were handling things, I never got the sense that they were a, sort of a, a police force involved in racial profiling or things that happened in the past, Bernie Getz and things like that. Yes, but I think that it's more of an individual because a lot of these guys, they they might have, um, I don't know, sort of sort of that football player mentality that we talked about last week, and they they get sure. a they get a gun, they they you know, have a badge, and 
the kind of goes to their heads, and I think that that's happened a lot out in L.A. There's uh, a, the degree of immunity that exists. Yeah, but you know this is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting too, in so many fronts, insurance related. You know, when you are insured as a municipal entity or a police department, are you going to need to have additional insurance for social media protection? And insurance for social media right now is sort of a, a new and developing concept. What do you do? How, what does it pr protect? Why do you need it? So there's just a lot of questions that are out there about this. Um, but I get what they're doing. I think it's they're trying to you know, move into the, to the future. So I think at some point everybody, every entity is going to have to be on social media at some point. There's no way of getting rid of it. Do you think it's a situation where they may want to, you know, you take, a, I guess, let me compare it to a business. You don't have everyone in your business, per se, out there tweeting on your company page or your Facebook page. You control it strictly. You, you, you control the information. Is this something where they ought to think less about worrying about whether or not Joe Patrolman is getting on board with media or online media or social media and be concerned more with making sure that the message that leaves the police department is productive and is even constructive and informative to the public versus whether or not they have a good image. Well, I think it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer because mm -hmm. first I'll go back to the idea of uh, a business controlling what is posted on social media and there's a balance you have to strike because if your social media page what is social media? Really, it's about interaction. You want to engage your audience, your customers, your client base. You want them to communicate with you and about you because if it's just you giving out a message, it's going to fall on deaf ears. It could have 100,000 you know, tweets, but if you aren't engaging people, nobody's going to read them. So social media is in and of itself uh, a social form of interaction, albeit through the computer as opposed to in person, but you need to have a message and you need to have communication. So when a company shuts down access to posting on their site, um, they have to have a few things in place. A, they've got to be willing to allow acceptable posts to be visible, and B, in order to do that, they need to have a, a significant plan in place for screening those people who are trying to engage. Otherwise, you're defeating the purpose of social media. So NYPD, they don't have those resources to have somebody sit full-time and watch all the millions of tweets that are going to come in and make sure that nobody's saying anything bad about the police. Everybody at some point in their life has said something bad about law enforcement or the police simply because they're there to enforce rules. And sometimes you've got great officers, sometimes you don't. They make mistakes. So I think you're you're going to have a hard time protecting the social media pages from having negative information. But sure, I think the other thing too, and, and you can't stop this; it's already there. People have video recording studios on their cell phones. You know, they've got a camera, they've got everything. Oh yeah. Them, and when they're out in public and the police do something wrong, that's going there. Um, that's getting up on their Facebook pages, but now it's just an opportunity to put it on the NYPD page as well. So sure. I don't know how you feel about this. I mean, it's tough because you want to see them understanding social media, understanding Twitter. You want to see them using it in investigations. 
uh, where it doesn't invade upon your privacy, but you don't necessarily want to see a page where you've got officers doing stupid things and then people calling them out on it. So I, I don't know. How do you feel about it? Well, it's it's nice. I live in a very rural area, and it's nice to be connected to the local sheriff's department to find out, you know, what roads are closed down for uh, for due to accidents. We have a um, a mental or it's not a mental facility. It's a former mental facility uh, within ten miles of my house that is now a transitional center for for uh, for convicts, and if they tend to walk away from that center, it's nice to get that update. Hey, by the way, we have a former uh, assault felon walking around through the woods out here. So it's nice to get that information. But that's kind of where me personally, when it comes to a government agency, I draw the line. I don't want to know about all the good you're trying to do. And and maybe that's not what NYPD is doing, and but it sure looks that way because of what they they have to deal with on a daily basis. They're not podunk policemen; they are somewhere in the middle of, uh, I mean, the technology universe. They they live every day in an area where there are hundreds of people around. Anytime they do anything, and like you had said, uploading um, uh, videos or, or comments about what people see so it's it's not even apples and oranges it's it's apples and seeds from a comparison standpoint to where i am versus where the nypd is so from a from an informational standpoint great thing from what i call a propaganda standpoint got to be careful yeah yeah so but but that's just and that's just one of the things that we talk about you know when you start talking about controlling employees and um uh social media and the NFL being the poster child for doing stupid things and their their employees doing stupid things, you have to watch out for employees doing things to your company that may not be so smart. Now, labor, the LRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is continuing its assault on employers' social media policies. Most recent volley came in a ruling finding a Connecticut sports bar violated the NLRB Act when it fired two employees based on their Facebook activity in relation to the business. In January of 2011, several employees of Triple Play, which is the bar in question, learned their state income tax liability would be more than they had anticipated. Now, a former employee named Jamie LaFrance complained on Facebook and blamed owners Ralph DeBuano and Thomas Dedona for not handling payroll withholding properly. Several Triple Play employees joined in the chorus. Bartender Vincent Spinella hit the like button on LaFrance's comment and later told the owners that he stood behind the comments others made on Facebook. Waitress Jill Sanzone recent, uh, really upped the ante when she made a comment, saying, yeah, I owe too much. Such a rectal sphincter. No asterisks, obviously, in the original of that one. Now, not surprisingly, perhaps, the owners fired Spinella and Sanzone, claiming the employees violated Triple Play's social media policy, which prohibited, quote, inappropriate discussions about the company, end quote. The NLRB has gotten interested in not only this, but other social media policies that uh, have been adopted by companies similar to Triple Play. From the NLRB's perspective, this type of policy can discourage concerted activity. Employees are permitted to talk to one another about terms and conditions of their employment. They can use social media to conduct that conversation, according to the NLRB. And the way that an owner manages payroll deductions is a term and condition of employment. The owners argued, however, that the comments were so disparaging and disloyal that they were beyond the NLRA's protection. Now, 
two of the three members of the panel hearing the case, dis, case disagreed with that. They ruled that by endorsing the former employee's original comment, Spinella and Sanzo were merely voicing their opinion on the employer's behavior. Now, the two-member majority also ruled in the case of the rectal sphincter comment. Sanzone was merely, profanely unfortunately, voicing a negative personal opinion. Now, here's where the question comes in. How far-reaching are companies' codes of conduct going to become or and or, I guess, permissible when it comes to NLRB in discussing or berating your employer online. I mean, the NFL obviously has a code of conduct. You know, those players do a myriad of stupid things. But one of the things I'm sure is if they start on the social media disparaging the employer, there could be problems. Um, you know, where where does that line stop that, you know, this is no longer conversation and this is part of disparaging and disloyal activity? Well, this is a really fascinating area because the NLRB is all over this, and they have been sure different changes as the the months have gone by. If you go on to the NLRB website and you can follow these uh, decisions, it's it's really interesting. But here's kind of the the broad brush approach. Here's what you need to know: if an employee is engaged in what they call concerted activity. Let me take a step back. What's the purpose of the NLRB? Back in the union days, NLRB was implemented to protect the rights of union workers. So if you were in a union or you were gathering up together in the cafeteria to complain about your wages or your working conditions, that was called protected concerted activity because you were not simply being... um, critical of your boss, you weren't uh, you know, saying something derogatory about him that wasn't connected to your working conditions. So take that fast forward to today's day and age with social media. It's the same idea. NLRB protects against concerted activity that deals with your employment conditions. So they're doing with taxes, what your salary and income is, overtime issues, working conditions, OSHA violations, all that stuff is, is considered to be protected concerted activity. It would violate um, Section 8 of the NLRB if you tried in your social media policy to limit or restrict employees' ability to talk about working conditions. So, when you're drafting a social media policy, which every single company that has employees should have, you have to keep in mind that there are things that you cannot protect against. So to have a social media policy that tries to restrict the NLRB-approved concerted protected concerted activities is stupid because it makes <laughs> the portions of your, your social media policy unenforceable. So what you need to know when drafting a social media policy is NLRB decisions and rulings. What disclaimers, for lack of a better term, do you need to put in your social media policy? And and I certainly suggest some sort of waiver that explains that any um, restrictions on social media 
are not meant to infringe upon your rights under the NLRB rulings in Section 8 and 7 uh, of the Act. But what does that mean you can do? Well, you can complain about, like I said, all those working conditions that affect you. When somebody likes your post, you go on to Facebook and you say, um, overtime sucks, I'm not getting enough money, being mistreated. When they like it, it becomes concerted activity. It's the ah. equivalent of being in, um, in the cafeteria talking to an employee about your dissatisfaction with your working conditions. So they're less concerned about the the medium provided. It's it's the the conversation, not how the conversation occurs. Exactly. And so the meeting that you might have in the cafeteria now has has been moved over to the meeting online where people are liking your post. So that is one thing protected. What's not protected is my boss is um, you know a scumbag. My boss steals money. Um, talking about somebody's religion or uh, you know, sexual preference or any of those things, using profanity simply because you know, you're complaining about your boss, he's a jerk, that kind of stuff. Acceptable. You can be terminated from that for that. And if that sort of language is in your social media policy, you have that policy to fall back on when you terminate the employee. So the difference is if it is not some form of complaint about your working conditions, then it is not protected by the NLRB. And there's a slew of decisions recently where people have criticized their, their bosses or their supervisors, and it might have sort of been on the fringe of, of, of working conditions. So, for example, there, there are a couple cases where somebody said, Oh, you know, my um, my shift manager is, is an ass. Um, he's not giving me any overtime. Uh, that's because he's gay and he doesn't like me because I wouldn't go out with him. That sort of stuff, it's, it's kind of like on the border of, well, is that really protected concerted activity? Or is that barraging remarks against your employer? And it's sort of an afterthought to include the idea of, Working conditions, and in cases like does that, the yeah does the confusion come in the fact that they they mention I'm not getting any overtime because they're although they're using disparaging comments about an individual they're using it in the context of I'm not getting any overtime or I'm not getting scheduled versus just the general situation where hey this guy's an ass right. it doesn't it's not specific right and that's where it becomes a very factual intensive sort of investigation. And the NLRB approaches these things with full formal hearings, with evidence and, and, and everything. And one of the, you know, some of the factors that are going to apply are when he posted that online, how many employees or coworkers saw that and liked it? How many people joined in that conversation that are employees? So is there any sort of concerted activity here, or is this just somebody griping? And I think that um, a lot of these cases are sort of leaning in the direction of, depending upon how you couch the language in your social media posts, if it's not something that you are all talking about clearly relates to working conditions, you can't use the idea of, of saying the word overtime simply to be able to criticize or badmouth the employer. But 
it's a very case-by-case -case basis, fact-driven analysis. And the NLRB is looking closely at all of these things. And this is going to continue, I think, for the next year and a half, two years. And as social media evolves, you know, the, the regulations will change too. And so it's, it's interesting. But I think that as an employer, first, how many people out there who are employers do not have social media policies? Oh, sure. That number's pretty high. And then what are you going to do about it? How are you going to draft it? Don't go on, I'll tell you this much. I've seen people who've come in here and said, oh, I got this online. Do not go online and look for a social media policy online. Our <laughs> decisions are coming too fast and furious. You need to have somebody that understands them to be able to draft that for you. So, Sure. Yeah. And again, a great question for Lou on Thursday as well. Yeah. We had a guy come in and he brought so. in a policy that he had, he had downloaded from the Internet. But it was like right after the first NLRB decision ever came down about social media, it was all wrong. And uh, it's like <laughs> where the girl is going to go out on a date and she says, you know, he's a French model. And the guy clearly looks like he's a homeless guy. But it's true because sure. it was on the Internet. The guy came in and said, I got this from the Internet. And I didn't know what to say to him. How, how do you respond to that? But I got it from the Internet. <laughs> well, it must be true then. Thank you. It must be true. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna follow that up with a Wikipedia investigation. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know it's funny because you know that's just one facet of of social media. And, and again, I wanted to tie that in with uh, Thursday's show, which we'll talk about uh, in the conclusion of this one. Uh, but Facebook and social media, and we've had conversations about other things in relation to them in in the legal world. One place where there is an advancement is a judge, according to the New York Post, okaying serving legal papers via Facebook. Social media users, beware the next Facebook poke you could receive might be from a process server. In a groundbreaking court ruling, a Staten Island man got permission to use Facebook to serve his ex-wife legal notice that he didn't want to pay child support any longer. A family court official ruled that Noel Bishako could use his Facebook account to serve Anna Maria Antigua because other, more traditional methods to slap her with papers have not worked. Staten Island Support Magistrate Gregory Glidman noted in his September 12th order that it was the first of its kind in New York and also the first in the United States that didn't involve an attempt to serve someone overseas. Seeking to cancel his court-ordered $440 per month child support based on their son having turned 21, Shaco, in a July 6th affidavit, said he tried to reach his ex at her home, but was told that Antigua had moved out with no forwarding address. A Google search also proved fruitless, and neither his nor the couple's 22-year-old daughter returned messages. The guy's not real well liked. But Shaco noted that Antigua remains on Facebook. She has an active social media account and had even liked some Photos posted on Facebook by Mishako's second wife as recently as July. Glidman ruled that it was impractical for Mishako to serve Antigua personally through someone at uh, maybe knocking at the door of their home or business or by taming a copy even to her door as well. However, despite the absence of a physical address, he does have a means by which he can contact her, namely the existence of a social media account, Judge wrote. Lawyer Michael Stutman, head of a family law for Ms. Khan De Rea in Manhattan hailed Glidman's ruling saying the idea that physically handing someone a piece of paper is the only way to serve notice is archaic. 
And I actually have an example on this one after we talk about, uh, you know, how how this could possibly even come to pass. I mean, actually, uh, even even our uh, good friend Robin Bull said, how do they even know this guy, this person is the person on this account? How does this happen, Peter? Well, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's actually um, interesting from the procedural standpoint as a lawyer. I, I, I understand where people would be concerned over it, but it's very difficult when you've got somebody who is ducking service and very expensive <laughs> to actually go out and serve them. Um, there are people who have clearly done something wrong, not in the criminal sense, but in the civil sense, and you go to serve them and you can't find them. And then you do a skip tracer back and you send it to all you know, of their last known addresses and they're not there. And you see them active online. Um, because perhaps they don't have their profile blocked. And so it's frustrating for a lawyer because so many of the traditional means of service, uh, for example, if you can't serve somebody in person, right, called in personam jurisdiction, you have to apply to the court for alternate service means, depending on Oh, okay. So you might have to serve them via publication, but that means you've got to file a motion to get the judge to approve this alternate service method, and then you've got to publicize it, and it just goes on and on, and um, you know, it's, it's hard for me as a lawyer to say that this is a bad idea, because I think <laughs> it's a good idea. Um, I think that you have to rely on the fact that, yes, people can create fake accounts, but it is more difficult nowadays than it was when social, me- social media first came out, because you've got to have some sort of, of, of proof of who you are, and I think that, uh, especially somebody that knows the person, like in this case, sure. I think that it's easy to say, well, I know who this is, we're friends, well, these pictures are legitimate, these posts are legitimate, I think it's easier, will this be expanded to the idea of serving somebody on Facebook with whom you are not friends, and I think that, that that's a no. I think where it becomes dangerous and problematic is if you search somebody's name on Facebook or Twitter, you can see them having an active account, but you're not a friend with them, so you can't really see exactly what they're doing. Uh, you can only see what is not blocked. I think that can become dangerous because, you know, how many people are out there with a similar name? You know, uh, Tim Jones or whatever it might be, common names. You're going to search and you're going to find information. I think it's inappropriate to try to serve people that way. But I think if you know the person, so, you know, if you're in a divorce dispute or an employer-employee relationship and you have had access to that person's social media prior to your uh, legal incident, I think that that might be okay. But so there's some verification that you know that that person is that person. Yeah, I think that, that obviously the uh, there's a lot of room for abuse, which would have to be dealt with. But something like service is um, very, very well sort of controlled by the court because if you don't serve somebody properly, you can have your case dismissed. And so I'm not so concerned over that. I, I think it's a good thing. You know, if a few, I think it was like eight or nine months ago, um, somebody filed a lawsuit against Verizon for their wireless something or other, and they walked the summons and complaint into a, in the mall. 
that was not ah. <laughs> a real Verizon kiosk, and they handed it to the store manager. And that was deemed to be good service because he was an employee of the company and acting okay. in corporate capacity. So I thought that was an interesting twist. But this is even more inter- interesting. And I think as long as it is used in a proper fashion and it doesn't get abused, it's okay. Um, because if you put yourself in the position of the person trying to sue, they see you on Facebook all the time and you're just ducking them. And that's not right. So why shouldn't they be able to do that? Well, that's my take. Sure. I think it's coming from a practical approach of, of finding it difficult sometimes to find people that don't want to be found. And I've had to, uh, my story on this is I've had to collect money from people. Matter of fact, I had to do it today. Um, I worked with some contract sites, and, and someone doesn't pay me via the site. Uh, can't get a hold of them through the site. I, because I have a lot of time on my hands, We'll search them out through social media and, and, and look at their posts if they're visible and say, oh, so this person was looking for this service, and then contact via email and say, hey, you know, this or the, the private messaging, hey, this is Bob Hughes, and I did some work for you, and I haven't been paid. What can we do to work this out? And we'll see how this particular one works out, but I know in the past um, it hasn't gone well, and I've had to actually uh, – um, go through the litigation process that the contracting service provides to get paid. So um, it's it's been a tool to me. How you got the right person unless they respond. You say, oh, yeah, I did do that for you. Now at least I know it's you. So I, I, I use it, but just not quite for the same purpose. Right. right. And I think that that's something that, that people have to be aware of. And I think that so many people are still unaware of the fact that if you don't properly block your social media pages, people can search you up. And even when you do block it, there's still ability to see certain elements. Uh, sure. I'm not quite sure how Facebook really works when it comes down to protecting information because I have seen content from people that, that I know have blocked things, and it's still up there. So I'm not 100% <laughs> sure how secure it is. But you, know, you have to be aware on the flip side of it, that people are going to look to social media to find you. And I think it's a good thing. I think that uh, especially when you've done something wrong, you can't sort of say, you know, in an instance where they're just not going to pay for services. You, you can't just say, oh, you know, I'm just not going to answer the phone or I'm not going to receive this mail or, or I'm going to move to another apartment, whatever it might be. So I think that it's good in, in those settings. And I think it's just as long as it's not oh. Opens the door, absolutely. Uh, Speaking of opening the door, we talked about this a week or two ago and what happens with social media sites and or digital content when someone leaves this world of ours. Delaware has become the first state to adopt a model law that says uh, social media accounts can be inherited. ABA Journal telling us, that when individuals die, their social media accounts often expire along with them, even if their loved ones have a password or terms of use for Facebook and other providers routinely restrict account sharing. Now, Delaware, though, has reportedly become the first state to enact changes for this expectation, recognizing social media accounts as property and providing for executives and heirs to get the passwords. The Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act also gives guardians responsible for disabled individuals a right to oversee their social media accounts, according to the Law 
and Disorder blog of Ars Technica and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Now, quote, a fiduciary with authority over digital assets or digital accounts of an account holder under this chapter shall have the same access as the account holder and is deemed to have the lawful consent of the account holder and be an authorized user under all applicable state, applicable state and federal law and regulations and any end user license agreement, which we talked about the EULA a couple weeks ago when it comes to how many songs you buy. Well, here you go. Because the law allows trust to hold title to digital assets, individuals with online artwork, photo collections, and or computer code they want to preserve can pass them on to their heirs in this manner as part of an estate plan. According to Trish Hall of Conley Gallagher, she tells the Inquirer that she helped persuade Delaware lawmakers to enact the statute. Individuals can also restrict access to their social media accounts provided in their wills that heirs cannot open or change the accounts, the newspaper reporting. Well, the new law resolves some legal issues concerning so-called digital death. However, it may well create new ones that the Law and Disorder article is pointing out as well. The law takes no account of minimizing intrusions into the privacy of third parties who communicated with the deceased. Talking, start talking about HIPAA laws or other type of information when, uh, you know, whether you got psychiatrists, you don't know who that person's talked to. Now you've got all that information. The law may well create a lot of confusion and false expectations because, as the law itself acknowledges, federal law may prohibit disclosing contents of communications. So we talked about this, Peter, and it, ta-da, it's here. You know, what's interesting is that they're talking, I think, and, and thinking more along the lines of social media pages and content versus, even though they mention photographs and music, I think that this is limited to Facebook photos on your social media pages because to try to force companies like Apple or Amazon or any of the music uh, companies to make what they've provided you more than a license, but ownership is going to be a really, really hard sell. I don't think that's ever going to happen because they are licensing the material to you. They're licensing the content to sure. you. I don't think that that's going to be something uh, that you can change with a law like this. Now, I think ownership of your content is a different issue. So I think that what they're trying to do here is really give the, the social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, that sort of thing, and pass them down through, through inheritance because there's information on there that you might want to save, photos on there. I mean, I guess it's the equivalent of the um, traditional photo album that you want to pass down to other generations. And isn't this the same thing? Um, so I understand that. I think it needs to be fleshed out a lot. It's kind of weird. You know, what are you going to have somebody that, that dies and then somebody else is going to continue to post from their site? You know, just talk <laughs> to Jim. He's having a great day in heaven. Or sure. Just, I don't know. I think that it's a good idea, but we're in a, in a field with technology that there's always got to be a first step, and then it can be refined. And I think that's what's going on here. I think it's good. Well, this, this particular statute actually specifies, and this is where a good question for you is, it specifies that you're, if you're an authorized user under all applicable state and federal law and regulations, you are entitled to any end user license agreement. Now, that's, that EULA, is does that apply to, like what you had said, you know, if, Apple, if, you've, if, if the deceased has paid for something 
whether it's music or video that has a licensing agreement to it, that how does that sit? Does that not qualify as an, a valid end user license agreement? I don't think so. I think that because here, just take this example. Um, the way this statute reads, the way that they want it to be interpreted is that anybody who is an authorized uh, user, anybody with authorized access. Mm -hmm. Well, what if I go on Twitter today and I post all of my login and password information for iTunes? And I say to okay. people, I believe in sharing and I want to share this with you. Now, does that mean when I die that all those people are valid license holders? No, I'd probably be sued along the way for <laughs> and that sort of thing. So I don't think it's that simple. Who is an authorized user just because five people in my family have my username and password? Sure. Who's the one that purchased the license? Is it them? Is it me? You know, when you buy software, and this is something that's been in existence since the 1980s, when you buy software, especially in business, uh, you have to buy individual licenses for everybody in your office to use a particular product. So I download software. I can't then say, well, everybody else can use it, even though I'm giving them permission and even though I'm the license holder. I've got to buy individual licenses for everybody. So I don't think that this is going to be what everybody would hope or think it would be because I think that there's so much room for interpretation in the language that they're using, and I think it... it, it you know, will be challenged definitely by powerhouses like Apple because they're... Oh, sure, yeah, they have lobby groups, huge. So I don't think this is going to work out that way. Interesting, good first step. I do understand and agree with the uh, inheritance of the Facebook and social media sites. The rest of this, though, I don't think it's going to go the way they want. <laughs> well, in regards to the end lights or user agreements, not necessarily the, the, the works of an individual. Right, exactly. I think what you'll see is yeah. that there'll be, um, you know, a massive uh, slowdown in shipments of iPhone sixes and other Apple <laughs> and more mad people in New Jersey. Right. You know, um, <laughs> I wanted to just mention something before we we end today, and that's um, a really really interesting video. And I'm going to try to post it on yeah. link, but I also want to try to post it on. Uh, on our YouTube page. Very, very fascinating. You saw it, right, Bob? Universal. Studios. I watched the video. I, yes, I'm not a... I, I watched the first movie in that series. I'm not in, excited about the rest, but notwithstanding, I saw the same thing you saw, and oh, wow. Yeah, so let's talk about this for a second. So Universal Studios in Orlando does this, this event every year called Halloween Horror Nights, and it's a really well put together. If you like horror, it's a really well put together event. They have various haunted houses, and the theming is like super, just super good. It's what you would expect from a movie studio. Sure. Um, and every year they have a different theme. So while there's various themes throughout the park, they also have like this main overall theme. Last year it was The Walking Dead, and you'd go into the park and you'd see all these zombies walking around. This year it's The Purge. And the, the premise of The Purge is that it's in, you know, a, a few years away, so somewhere in 2020 or something like that, and uh, that the government has allowed one night of the year for a 12-hour period of time to be a, a uh, it, it's safe to, to kill people and to commit crime. Um, you can use weapons up to a certain level, 
but all crime is legal. There's no police, there's no ambulance, and you can kind of do what you want. Uh, if you've got a neighbor that has really been bothering you throughout the year, save up all your anger to that one night and then go kill him. That's the idea behind this. And really what it's about is population control. So it's, it's a fascinating thing, but they've made this really good kind of horror genre, horror series. Uh, <laughs> but here's where I have an issue. The opening night of Halloween Horror in Orlando, there's a video on YouTube, and what it shows is a huge horde of, of guests waiting to get into the park. And these guests include kids and elderly Everybody who want, who's at the park. And, and they're not in line. They're just there. It's like a massive, it's like a cattle call. It's huge. <laughs> and they, they come out, and they're doing behind the, the line where the people are, are being held back, this sort of pre-show, and these characters are coming out, and um, they're getting ready to, to purge. And so they've got weapons in their hands, and there's... Uh, you know, I'd say there's a good 30, 40 of these, these characters from Universal. And when the purge starts, and now you can enter the park, all of a sudden, these people start running into the park. Meanwhile, you've got purge people, you know, trying to scare them and pretend that they're going to kill them. But what's interesting to note in the video is that there are some parents, like, holding their kids so they don't get trampled. Oh, yeah! by these other people running through the, the park. And I found this really interesting from a premises liability standpoint, and I, I even looked it up to see if there's any waiver that you have to sign before you go into the park, if there's any warning about how entry to the park is going to be. There is warning <laughs> on all these haunted houses and things like that about this might not be good for somebody with a heart condition. It's scary. And that's sure. what you would expect, but... As a guest to the park, you know, if I had had my small kids with me, I would have been really nervous, and I was surprised that they allowed people to run like that. It, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's funny because I have the small kids, and 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 I think about it even more now than I ever used to when I'm in situation. You know what? Let's just get out of the way here, and 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 just let these people do what they're going to do, but. It's the. I don't know what what the possible benefit of outside of the entertainment factor of letting people do this. You know, hey, the park's open at ten. Come on in. Maybe get everybody in the park, then do the little show to open the place this way and just like you said, mass. I'm gonna call it an exodus because no one's leaving. They're coming. Mass entrance. It's it's mind-boggling. Yeah, someone. That's that's the way people get trampled yeah and then lawsuits for, for you know negligence are filed um it w it looked like best buy on black friday <laughs> i was just thinking the same thing <laughs> like people trampling over people to get into the park and i can't understand the reason because if they had allowed people into the park at a normal pace they could have still presented their 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 show the way that they did. You know, in fact, sure. when that initial crowd has entered the park and people are now just coming into the park the way that they normally do, these characters that are out there trying to scare you still do the same things. But what was right. really alarming was this it was really like a group of cattle or people on Black Friday 
And I was just really shocked that Universal would allow that to happen because of the potential risk of serious injury. And it, it looked like the running of the bulls. It really did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people were... And, you know, you're going to have a lot of kids and younger people coming to an event like this because of the scare factor. Maybe older adults might not enjoy it. But as I'm looking around the crowd, there were fathers holding their, their sons. There were people with strollers. There were people that had crutches. And I just... It was mind-blowing. I really was surprised because... Liability is something that these big parks, they think about all the time. They've got major law firms involved with helping them keep themselves safe. And to do that, uh, I don't know if anybody got hurt. I, I don't think so. We probably would have heard about it, or maybe. But definitely a risk. It, yeah, it seemed, it seemed as reckless as it looked in the planning. Yeah, if I was an insurance me. company, I would be raising premiums right now. <laughs> and that's what makes you a good attorney. As October approaches and Halloween gets closer, um, some of these shows, we're going to start introducing some things that are, are Halloween geared. And we'll do one show, Bob, where we just talk about, we'll put the news aside for a second, we'll just talk about Halloween liability and safety because, believe it or not, there's a lot of risk, and I know it sounds like, oh, my God, this scary attorney trying to make us all, you know, shake in our boots, but there are a lot of potential issues that can, can harm you and your homeowner's insurance on Halloween. Uh, yeah. Well, and not only that, you have a lot of these, and I don't know if you've seen it out there, but around here, these haunted forests that pop up for, you know, and it's not their business. They just, they do it. Maybe there's a charity tied to it. Uh, maybe, you know, we I think there's one in the area that is done by a local theatrical group. But I don't know that they think about the liability that is uh, presented to them when they do this. No, I don't think they do either. I think I, I've seen them too, and they... Some of them are major productions, and they, they come back every right. year. You know that they probably have insurance, and they thought this through. And then there are other, like you said, you know, oh, we're going to do a, a charity event. We're going to do this kind of pop-up haunted house. And they don't really understand what's at stake. And the same goes for, for parents who are trying to make uh, Halloween fun for their kids, and they'll set up a haunted house on their front lawn. Um, I remember a few... Well, not a few, I mean a, a number of years ago, I remember a story where there was a guy in northern Jersey who was hiding behind bushes. And every time kids would come oh, up, yeah, sure. spooky, you know, he'd jump out, and one kid had a heart attack. Oh, jeez. He was a teenager, and, and the kid had a heart condition. Nobody knew about it, but the kid had a heart attack. So what is his liability? So we can talk all about that as October creeps near, we'll, um, we'll set a date, we'll set a Monday, and we'll just talk about Halloween and liability. It gives me an opportunity to talk about Halloween because I like Halloween. And I have daughters, so what I generally do to scare kids is I leave a dead teenager on the front lawn. <laughs> Keeps the rest of them away. Okay, we'll talk about that. <laughs> 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 that and and always take the uh, the teenage boy to the shooting range when he starts to ask about dating your daughter. Explain to him what a, how how fast a thirty out six travels. 
<laughs> no, no, no. no we'll, we'll talk about it. I might have to be. We'll discuss insurance at that point. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's gonna that's gonna do it for today. We we covered everything that we had to, which was great, and um, you know we were able to cover some of those stories that we missed last week. So that's a that's a good thing. A uh, few reminders. Don't forget this Thursday, Lou Adler, CEO and founder of the Adler Group, will be on the show. Uh, he is a, a you know, human resources guru. We talked about him throughout today's show. So join us Thursday, 10 a.m. for that. Uh, don't forget that tomorrow, 10 a.m. live on the YouTube channel, we've got live legal Q&A. Wednesday, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, we've got Minding Your Business. And then Thursday, obviously, the Lou Adler show that uh, we're going to be doing with, uh, with Lou. So that's going to be great. Thanks again to our sponsor, Audible. Remember, go to audibletrial.com forward slash UTL radio to get your free audio book. We've got uh, some charity events coming up that we're going to start talking about on our social media pages. Up next is the anti-bullying campaign come October, so we're going to spend some time on that. And uh, I'm going to work with Bob. We're going to come up with that that Halloween show. We'll figure out what's uh, the best date, and then we'll talk about uh, Halloween and, and protecting yourself from liability or from weight gain or any of those things. So it'll be great. Um, <laughs> I think that's all I have for today. Do you have anything else, Bob? Yeah. Nothing at all. Just um, just uh, the, the wheels are turning looking forward to Halloween show. So uh, we're going to wrap up today. We will be back tomorrow, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, live legal Q&A. That's uh, a broadcast show on this station as well as live on our YouTube channel, so check that out. If you want more information about the show, go to utlradio.com. All of our links to social media are up there, the YouTube page, Twitter, Facebook. Make sure that you comment on uh, all of our broadcasts and, and, and posts. It's really important for us to know what you're thinking. Do you like it? Do you like the content? Is there something else you'd like to see more of or less of? You know, we do this for you guys so that we can get a better handle on the law, which can be a very, very confusing field. We try to make it fun. We try to bring some uh, some practical information to you guys. So your comment, feedback, anything that you want to say about us, we welcome it. Good, bad, or indifferent, but your feedback's critical. So please make right. comments uh, on, on the various pages. That's it. So thanks, Bob, for being here today. I will see you next Glad to be here. And then uh, we'll see everybody else tomorrow, 10 a.m. Remember that there's power in understanding the law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.